You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. At one point in our many travels this summer, my family and I drove through a place in Missouri called Hannibal, Missouri. Maybe you've been there. If, if you know anything about Hannibal, you know it's the setting for the book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And uh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain grew up there. Like many boys, I read that book with fascination. And I thought as I read that as a kid, it seemed like their adventures, if I could choose the way my summer would go, that's how my summer would go. I love the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, and, and one of my favorite episodes from the story, though, was when Tom Sawyer convinced the other boys to paint the fence for him. And you probably remember that, where um, he was painting a fence and he didn't want to be doing it, and, and yet a boy would come along and he would start presenting painting the fence in one way to these boys, and by the end of it, he's got a long line of boys waiting to paint the fence, whitewash the fence for him. Because he convinced them it was not work, but a privileged opportunity. They've actually got a whitewashed fence set up in Hannibal at Mark Twain's museum and boyhood home. And one of the things that stands out about that story is how smooth Tom is. And the way that he presents it, the way that he convinces them, he really, he's a little con man. And, and that term is short, I looked, I looked a little, little research into it. And it's on the internet, so it's true, but it's short for confidence man. And there were, there were uh, men, in, especially in New York City in the 1800s, and they would, there was a specifically a man, the last name Walker, and he would go up to people dressed real nice, and he would dress real nice, and he would walk up to them, and, and he would convince them that they knew him, but they were too embarrassed to admit it. You know, he would talk to them like they're familiar. You've been that way before. And that's when the Baptists use the, old, use the old standby, hey, brother, if you don't know a name, just go with brothers. So, you know, you see somebody, you know, he, he sees them, he's talking to them, he's trying to convince them that he knows them and, and they're embarrassed to admit that they don't. And so in the course of the conversation, he would ask them for something valuable and, and say, oh, I need to borrow that. Do you have confidence in, in loaning that watch to me, for instance? And so they would, by, because they're already embarrassed they don't know him, they would say, sure, here you go. And he says, I'll bring it right back, or I'll bring it back tomorrow, and I'll meet you right here. And of course, what would happen? They would never see him again. And so it came to be that the confidence man, do you have confidence in me? That's where the term con man came from, because he would convince them to have confidence in him based on himself. He was a con man. So Tom, in his in his. Uh, conning abilities, his smooth abilities to get other people to do his work, kind of reminded me of the con man. But the other part of the story that stands out is how gullible his friends were. I mean, I've never looked at somebody painting and thought, that seems like a lot of fun right there. If you've ever painted, you know that it takes more to clean up and set up than it does to actually paint. I mean, it takes somebody real smooth to convince you but it also takes somebody gullible to fall for that trick like the boys did. And I couldn't confirm who said it first, but a lot of people attribute it to 
P.T. Barnum as the one saying there's a sucker born every minute. There are a lot of gullible people out there. And con artists know it. You know, these days, uh, there are con artists trying to call my cell phone all the time. There's, there, there's, there are scam calls, there are spam calls, and someone's trying to sell something on Craigslist that's not valid. And there's a lot of gullible people that are taking advantage of these days. And you say, well, I'm not gullible. I just give people the benefit of the doubt. And to that I say, well, that, yeah, the word gullible is also not in the dictionary. So maybe you've heard that joke before. You know, being gullible can be funny unless you're truly taken advantage of. You know, we joke about a, a young person being gullible or being easy to be tricked. And, and I saw a, a video just recently of a very masculine young man in our youth group screaming like a girl in a video because he was scared. And, and you should ask Carlos about that. Um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of things take us by surprise. They catch us off guard. And if we're not careful, honestly, there's a lot of people out there trying to take advantage of you. They're trying to sell you something that doesn't work. They're trying to get their hands on your property. And it's funny and silly until someone gets taken advantage of. It's funny or silly, um, but if we want to protect our money and our lives, we need to test things out before we just trust them these days. And I'm not saying turn into some kind of a cynic, but a little skepticism can be helpful. Uh, Proving something first has probably saved a few people from heartache along the way. If you're going to go out and buy something, you should always take the vehicle for a test drive. You should, you should always take it to somebody uh, that's a good mechanic to have them look at it before you buy it. If you're like me, I need somebody to help me with those kind of things. If, you should always see a house before you make an offer. I don't know, sometimes it may work out if you find a good deal and you just jump on it. But you should have it inspected. You should have somebody look at it before you just jump in. You should test a product before you buy it in bulk from Costco. I've done that before where you go to Costco and you see this is a great deal and, and we buy something in bulk and, and only to realize we don't really like it. Now what do we do with all of it? You know, I'm not saying today to be cynical. I'm saying be wise. See, maybe more accurately, I could say use discernment. If you test something out before you buy it, or you have something inspected before, or try it before you recommend it, that shows a desire to be discerning. If you don't, we might could start calling you gullible. And this mindset, mindset translates to our faith as well. There's so many conflicting belief systems out there that it can be difficult to know what you, what you believe or what to believe. On your way here this morning, you probably saw a dozen churches with different names on your way. And it can be hard to discern. There's, there's so much out there to wade through and filter through that I think that many people just don't even try anymore. Rather than try to discern what's right, they just don't try. But if we're to read uh, John here in his chapter, we, he says actually that's the opposite of what we should be doing while a lot of people don't try at all, John says, no, try every spirit. John, John says, don't just take what people bring you and accept it by faith. Where many aren't trying, we should be trying. We should be trying every spirit. We should be proving every voice. We should be filtering every influence that comes our way. What he's saying is, don't just have blind faith. Now, this could be a little bit counterproductive for me as a preacher... I hope by the end of it we'll see that it's not. 
I'm not saying that you should doubt everything that you hear, but you should know what you believe enough so that you can filter what you hear through truth. A.W. Tozer said, the man who believes anything is as far from God as the man who refuses to believe anything. The man who believes everything is as far from God as the man who refuses to believe anything. It's important to be discerning when it comes to your faith because there's so much conflicting teaching to weed through. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God and salvation is through faith in him alone. But others are coming along and they're saying, well, Jesus Christ is God, but you have to meet God halfway. You have to work to be saved. There are some that say salvation is through baptism. There are others that believe salvation is a process. It's not a point in time. And then you have others that believe God selects those to be saved and they don't have a choice in the matter. Plenty believe Jesus Christ was a good man. He was a prophet, but not the son of God and therefore not necessary for salvation. And after after that, you get into other scriptures or new revelations. You've got new prophets coming along telling you different messages. Some are saying now there's no afterlife. There are famous preachers today saying there's no hell. I mean, things are completely apart or separated from Christian worldview, and now they're sneaking their way in to churches that not long ago looked a lot like ours. It's hard to discern. And if it wasn't any different for John either. First John was written just a few decades after Jesus Christ, and yet there are already false teachers leading people astray. And we've talked about false teachers even in this series a little bit, according to historical tradition. The Apostle John pastored a church in Ephesus. It's probably a safe assumption to think this letter was written to counter those false teachers. And we don't know that for sure, but a lot of people believe that he was writing this to this church that he pastored. Um, but I haven't made a big point of that because it doesn't clearly say that. Um, but, but we know that he is approaching this book as a pastor, as someone that's protecting, as someone leading a flock. He's like the shepherd that's protecting the flock from the wolf that wants to sneak in the back door and carry some lamb away. There's a form of teaching in that day called Gnosticism. We've talked about that in this series a little bit as well, but they had two main premises. One was that salvation is through knowledge, not faith. Gnosticism, what you know. They said you've got to learn and know and be educated and, and be intellectual, and if, the more that you know, the more, you, the more likely you can be saved. The second premise, the second basic premise, was that all matter is evil. They said anything that has bo- a body, anything that has, that's physical, anything that you can see and touch and feel, they say that's evil, and that caused a problem with their view of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ came and he had a body, then that body is evil. And in their minds, they couldn't rectify that God, a holy divine God, could have a body that's evil. So they started teaching then that his body wasn't real. It was an illusion. Or they would teach that his body uh, was physical, but he wasn't filled with the spirit except for a time in his life from his baptism until his death. So they tried to explain a way that Jesus Christ came in a physical body. That Gnosticism started to affect then certain teachers, and those are the kind of false teachers John is talking about. Um, they They were causing people to doubt Jesus Christ and who he was. Their perspective on Christ was false. It was wrong. And honestly, there's a lot of confusion about Christ in our day. A lot. Now, uh, in here, we're all pretty confident. 
of who Jesus Christ is, but uh, you know, I had a long conversation with a young man just this week whose faith is teetering because he can't come to grips with what he believes about Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a stretch for him to believe in God, but one's view of Christ is the foundation of the Christian faith. And a lot of people say, well, all paths lead to God and everybody's God is the same. But let me just tell you this, that even the devils believe in God and they tremble, the Bible says. So you can believe in God, but if you don't have Jesus Christ right in your mind, if you don't fully understand who he is or place your trust in him, then you cannot be saved. The foundation for faith goes beyond simply believing in God. You come to terms with his son. God the Father sent him, Jesus Christ, to this earth in a literal body, we're told, in which he never once sinned, just becoming the only satisfactory payment for our sins on a cross. He died in our place as our substitute to give us the opportunity to be reconciled with our Father. It's not just about saying a prayer. It is understanding who Jesus Christ is and then by faith trusting him as the only exclusive way to eternal life. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, to stand up here and preach today. There is an exclusivity in Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of confusion still. And false teaching has tripped up countless well-meaning Christians along the way. The problem is most of, uh, most of it has enough truth that it's confusing. Most of it is conveyed in such a way that it sounds right. But it just reminds me of Satan in the Garden of Eden when he came to Eve and he had enough elements of truth in what he told her that he deceived her. And then Adam came along and he made a choice and now we're all still affected by that sin nature they passed along to us. But Satan came with just enough truth to sound legitimate. There's a lot of almost truth out there. False teaching has led many well-meaning people down a, a path of error. And that's what John is trying to get the readers to be protected from. He's trying to help the family to know how to be discerning. False teaching is dangerous. It could lead us astray. Rather than bringing us closer to God, as, as we see in the Garden of Eden, if we don't, if we don't stand against it or have discernment about it, uh, it could, the, the results, the consequences could be eternally terrible. It draws us away from God. And, and listen, there are a lot of gullible Christians out there. And they believe everything they hear. They fail to be discerning. So the first thought I'd like to convey this morning is why discernment's necessary here from 1 John chapter 4. Why discernment's necessary. It says in verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Now understand the word spirit. John has, look back up in verse 24. It said, the last part of verse 24 says, of chapter 3, 24. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 24. It says, And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. What do you notice about that word spirit in verse 24? It's capitalized. Now look at verse 1 of the following chapter, verse 4, or chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Is it capitalized? No, there's a difference here. See, John has just used the word spirit with the capital S to refer to the person, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It's a proper name. And at that point, he was talking about how the Holy Spirit helps us in our love, in our obedience, in our belief in Christ. And those things are aided by the Holy Spirit working in us. So that's, that's chapter 3, that's the end of chapter 3, what we dealt with last week. But then he transitions 
into pastor mode, protector mode. He says, beloved, those whom I love don't believe everything that you hear from every lowercase spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit anymore because if he was, he could have said, beloved, believe everything you hear from the capital spirit. But he says, no, beloved, believe not everything that you hear from lowercase spirits. Transitions, it says, I love you, I want you to be careful. There's a lowercase s. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's referring to other influences in their lives. And he's saying, you can trust the Holy Spirit. He'll lead you to truth. But there are other spirits. There are other influences. There are other voices in your life. And they're trying to lead you astray. Don't just believe every voice. Don't just accept what you're told. Don't trust that every voice in your life will lead you to truth. Why, he says. Well, at the end of verse 1, he says, But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. He says, here's why, because there's a lot of false voices out there. What he's saying, by saying they are gone out into the world, what it seems that he's implying is there were those who seemed to be genuine Christians at one point. They were right with you. They were right among you. But now they've gone out. They've been deceived. And they're trying to tell you something different than what you've heard before. They're preaching false doctrine. And look down in verse 6, and you see kind of the main idea here. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, Hereby know we the spirit of truth, and the spirit of error. So what he's giving them is he's saying there are two paths, there are two things at war right now. There's the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of truth comes from the Holy Spirit, and he only conveys God's accurate messages. But there's also a spirit of error that Satan himself is influencing. False doctrine, folks. False doctrine is not just a matter of simple misinterpretation. False doctrine is not just a matter of, oh, I just misunderstood or I uh, I misinterpret or we're we're interpreting these different. It's not a big deal. No, false doctrine, according to this text right here, Satan has a hand in making sure that false doctrine is spread. This This is a supernatural force behind it. This is not just an intellectual problem. These aren't just people misinterpreting passages. This this is Satan making sure that false doctrine is being spread so that he can lead God's people down the spirit of error, down the wrong path. Behind every false doctrine is a puppet master, and his name is Satan. Satan is great at deceiving God's people, is he not? We need discernment because we are the targets of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 states that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come to us like Satan. He doesn't come to us in the form that we understand and say, oh, wow, look at the horns and the long red tail and that, that, that uh, red outfit he's got on. It's obviously Satan. Y'all watch out for him. No, he comes, the Bible says, he comes as an angel of light. And, and I'm not trying to be spooky today, and I know a lot of churches you'll go to, they won't even really talk about the devil. And they won't talk about supernatural things. And I think we've, we've kind of been scared away from it as Baptists a little bit. But it's real. It's in the Bible and it's real. Satan is not a force, he's a person. And he is a real person and he is trying to thwart God's plan just like he did in the Garden of Eden way back when. From that moment, he has proven what he wants to do. He wants to take God's people down. 
and right now he may not have the ability to come. God is holding him back. He protects us. Satan may not have the ability to come and just break us in half, but if he can get some to be deceived by false teachers and false prophets, he can lead us down a wrong path just in the same way that he could break our bodies. That's what he's looking to do. And he doesn't come looking like Satan. He comes actually looking like an angel. He comes speaking the words that sound flowery and the words that sound good. And the reason that we need to be careful, the reason John says to be careful about trying the spirits is because what he's telling him, if it's obviously Satan, you don't have a reason to try the spirits. If it's obviously the devil, you don't have a reason to go and, well, well, let's make sure everything's okay. No, it's because they're coming in the form of someone, something that seems right. That's why we need to be discerning. That's why we need to, uh, by saying trying, we need to test it out. That, that phrase, try the spirits whether they are of God, it, t- try means to test. It means to examine. It means to prove or scrutinize. You need to see if it's genuine. You need to check if it's worthy. If you think it's important to take a car for a test drive, how many of you, if you're looking to buy a car, how many of you, before you buy that car, you think it's a good idea to take it for a test drive? Okay? Yeah, you can raise your hand. It's okay. Um, how many of you, this can be interactive. It's, you, you can raise your hand, okay? One more question. How many of you think if you're going to go buy a car, before you buy it, you want to drive it and you want to take it to a mechanic that you trust? Just with a quick raising of every hand. Okay. For those of you that don't raise your hand, you're going to buy lemons your whole life, okay? You need to learn this lesson. Well, so here's the, here's the problem. As God's people, when I go buy a car, I'm going to test it out, and I'm going to drive it, I'm going to take it to a mechanic. If I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to go look at the house. I'm going to have somebody come inspect it. But there are certain of God's people that when it comes to their spiritual lives, they'll accept whatever comes their way. And you tell me what's more dangerous Um, Getting a bad car or having your spiritual life destroyed. And yet we're less careful about our spiritual lives than we are about cars and houses. And that's what John is trying to get them to see. He's using a very important phrase here, this verse, when he says, try the spirits whether they are of God. John tells us what our filter is. Is it of God? Okay, so how do we know what's of God? Well, God reveals himself in one way today, and that's through the book. This is God's revelation of himself. There's a lot out there, a lot of people saying that God reveals himself, or he revealed himself to me, or he spoke a new word to me, and I got it. But if you read the Bible, it becomes very clear that God reveals himself through his word, and there's a closed revelation. Now, he can prompt us, and he can lead us in certain ways, but in terms of revealing himself, he's already done it through the Bible. We have everything that we need. And so when John says, try the spirits whether they are of God, what he's saying is, take what you know of God and apply it to what you hear so that you can filter out all the noise. If you're going to be discerning, folks, listen, if you're going to be discerning, you better know the truth or you will be deceived because the false teaching out there looks like truth. You will be tricked. The less familiar you are with what you know of God, the more likely you are to be duped by false teaching. And I've heard that in the banking industry, and I know it's true that they'll teach their employees, they're trained to tell if a bill is real or fake based on teaching them what a real bill looks like. No, in other words, they don't go through and, and they don't show them, Aaron, do you have any money? This is so humiliating. 
This is a picture of my life right here. Okay, I want the biggest bill you have. Okay, you're not getting this back. Okay, so this is a $10 bill. And what they'll do in the banking industry is they'll, they'll teach somebody what this looks like so that when something comes along that doesn't look like it, they'll know. And you've probably heard this illustration before, but it's still very valid. Uh, you've got to know truth before you can discern error. You've got to know what's real before you can sense what is counterfeited. And we've got a lot of Christians out here uh, who aren't taking the time to understand or know truth. So when something comes along that's not truth, they don't know. They can't tell. And, they're, and they're, they're duped by what is counterfeit when they should have been able to tell by knowing the real thing. Once they're so familiar and with, at the bank with a piece of money, they can spot a fake bill from a mile away, and that should be true in our spiritual lives. The more we know about God's character, the more that we know about his ways through his word, the greater the contrast will be when something comes along that's obviously not true. So what John is saying is test it out. Don't be gullible. Don't have blind faith. Know what is true so you can discern what's not. Discernment is necessary because of all the falsehood out there. Discernment is necessary because the falsehood looks a lot like truth. And we've got to be mindful to know truth so that we can discern falsehood. So that's why we need it. That's why it's necessary. But second, where discernment begins... Why it's necessary and where it begins. And this is in verses 2 and 3. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the, that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So here's where discernment begins. Are you ready? Do they confess the true Jesus Christ? Do they confess that Jesus Christ is God? Do they confess in the deity of Christ? Do they say that Jesus Christ is who he said he was? John says the most basic question in discerning between authentic and counterfeit spirits is, what do they say about Christ? And what he's saying is, if a person says that Christ did come in the flesh, they're of God. Remember, they've got the Gnostics and they're teaching them, well, Christ couldn't have come in the flesh because all matter is evil and God would never have an evil body. Uh, so that's what they're fighting against. So John again is saying, if they say that Christ did come, they're of God. If they say he didn't come, they're not of God. They're the spirit of Antichrist, which we talked about back in chapter 2. But apparently it didn't take very long for people to start denying Christ's literal incarnation, his coming in flesh. The early results of those around Christ couldn't deny. They, I mean, you look around in the years just after Jesus Christ, and it wasn't hard to prove that Jesus Christ came in a real body because a lot of people saw his body. I mean, you could go start teaching that, but you'd have a bunch of witnesses come and say, no, I saw his body. You can't stand up here and teach that. I saw his body. I touched his hand. I, I was near him. He had a physical body. Well, now that we're about 50 or 60 years maybe removed after Christ's death, the, the, the memory has faded. And now people, they know there aren't as many witnesses, eyewitnesses to the accounts still alive. And so John is dealing with, with these false teachers that saying, well, Christ never came in a body. 
And I know John already dealt with this before when he talked about Antichrist, but it must be important because he starts on it again. This must be something that's on his mind, and and it is because it's the foundational truth of the authentic believer. You want to you want to know the first the first and most important family trait is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Everything else comes after that. What a person believes about Christ determines their standing with God. You as a believer, and I hope you're here this today, especially if you don't know that you're saved this morning, um, but your standing with God is fully and completely dependent on what you believe about Jesus Christ. It's where it starts. And you as a believer have the responsibility to start discernment with what you believe about Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This is where discernment begins. That's the very first filter. That's the very first question. Many false religions, and we talked about this a couple months ago, many false uh, religions like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, as good and well-meaning as they may be, they are established on the premise that Jesus Christ is not what he claimed to be. They're established on the premise that Jesus Christ is not God. They'll say that Jesus Christ was a good man or a great prophet or a wonderful example, but then, they'll, but then we need to ask them the question, okay, do you believe he is God? And I've asked that on the, doors, uh, the doorsteps of many people before that say they're some, from some background, and they'll, say, Gee, they'll use the word Jesus Christ, they'll talk about Jesus Christ, but when I say, do you believe he is God? Someone will say, well, I believe he's the son of God meaning that God sent or or formed Jesus or created Jesus and sent him out. That's not the same. He's not just from God. Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ is God, and that's where it all starts. Many respect Christ as a teacher. Other religions respect him as a teacher, but they don't acknowledge him as Savior. And right here is where the first separation between biblical Christianity and much of the mainstream religion out there begins to happen. There's a popular slogan out there that says all paths lead to God. And I don't want to be offensive today, but there's only one path that leads to God. And that path goes through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. According to what we know of God, there in verse 1, he says they are of God, whether they're of God. According to what we know of God, the Bible says Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. Placing your trust in his finished work, not baptism, not good works, not good intentions, not church membership, but in Jesus Christ alone, that's the only way to spend eternity with God in heaven. And I know the claim, again, to exclusivity can be off-putting, but if God, listen, if God went to those lengths, if that was God's plan, and he he knew that in sending Jesus Christ, he would have to be separated from his own son, that they would, for the first time in eternity, there would be separation, he'd have to turn his back on his own son. If, If there is no exclusivity, then why did God go through that? Why would he go through that plan why would he go through that, that, that terrible moment of being separated from his son if there was some other way to be saved? Don't you think if God could have just given us a list and said, keep this list and you'll be good, he would have? I think he probably would have. But he knew there was no way for us to be reconciled to a holy God except that someone would come to this earth, God himself, and never sin. 
thus becoming the only substitute, the only adequate payment for our sins. It's the only plan. It is exclusive, and I know that's not popular, but there is one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ, God's Son. Our filter for what we believe, for what we discern, starts with what you do with Jesus Christ. Discernment begins with that. So discernment's necessary. Discernment begins with Christ. But here's how discernment is measured, number three. Notice the first words of verses four through six. It says in verse four, ye are of God. Verse five says, they are of the world. Verse six says, we are of God. So I think this is interesting because he's making very clear. He's talking about somebody of God. In verse one, he says, they are of God. Four, ye are of God. Five, they are of the world. Six, we are of God. And he's really making very clear markers here between what is of God and what is of the world. He's helping them to be discerning. He's helping them to know, here's how we measure this. And he starts with, ye are of God, in verse 4, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Overcome means to conquer. It means to be victorious. In this context, John is telling them that they've held fast to their faith, even though the false teachers were trying to get him to go astray. And, and, and sometimes we take this verse a little bit out of context. It's a great verse. I love it. He says, if overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And, but we, to understand the context really kind of fine-tunes it for us. The evidence that John needed to declare them as overcomers was they had kept the faith in the face of all the false prophets. The ones that were trying to get them to go astray. John says, you're overcomers because you've stood your ground. You haven't been tricked. You haven't been deceived. A victorious overcomer doesn't get carried away with all the new doctrine. Why? Well, here's what John says. Because greater is he, the Holy Spirit, that is in you. Than he, Satan, that is in the world. Now, it's a great verse. And we could sing the chorus and... And have a great time. Greater is he that is in me. We could clap and wake everybody up. We're not going to today. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen. But the specific application here, the specific context is about truth and error. And what he's saying is, there's, Holy Spirit is in you. And all the false prophets are of Satan. And they try to convince you of something that's not true but you stood your ground because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And what John is trying to get them to see is that they're overcomers, not because of what they know, but because they have something on their side nobody else has. This is huge. They have the Holy Spirit on their side. And when you have God on your side, that's always the advantage. When I was in, in, in high school, I played uh, football and I was, my position group was outside linebacker and I played against these two guys, that, two guys that literally played in the NFL. One of them played in the NFL for about eight years. So we would practice and we would do our drills. And, of course, I'm, you know, five, nine on a good day. And these guys, one of them was 6'3", 220 pounds. His brother was 6'6", 220 pounds. So, I mean, they would carry me around the football field. And... But I remember going against them, and I was about... 180 pounds in high school. And we would go against each other and it was like me trying to walk up to that wall and push it. Nothing happened. And honestly, it caused a lot of frustration in practice. 
But when we got out on the football field, I was really glad those guys were on my side. Greater is, are they that are with me than whoever you got on your side. And it gave me confidence. Listen, folks, you have an advantage always as a child of God. And that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And there's a lot of stuff that's going to come your way. And there are going to be, there's going to be a lot of intimidation. There's a lot of false teaching. And people come and they'll try to convince you of something. And you might feel intimidated. John's readers did. They probably felt intimidated by this intellectual superiority of the Gnostics. They prided themselves on what they knew. And they thought, well, we don't stand a chance in some debate with some guy who knows it all. And they have a mental advantage and they know all this stuff. What John is saying, though, folks, and I want you to get it, is that the Holy Spirit in you gives you the advantage because through his help, you can have discernment. The Holy Spirit is greater than Satan. So even in a debate about what's true and what's not, you don't have to be tripped up. God's people, I think we can be intimidated. We can be intimidated by somebody with superior knowledge. And I think of young people, especially when I think of this, is that young people, you know, they're 14, 15, 16, and we try to get them to go out and we do some outreach training and we're going to try to get them to knock on a door and somebody, some old man like me opens the door and now they're intimidated. They're, I don't know what to say. I don't know how, how am I going to debate him. He, he's got a seminary degree or or he's the pastor of this church over here, and they've got a lot of years and, and wisdom on me. I don't know what to do. Well, to them, I would say, like I would to anybody here, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And it's not about what you know, and it's not about your mental faculties, and it's not about your ability to debate in a moment. See, what you have on your side is the Holy Spirit and truth. And that's all you'll ever need to resist the false teachers. That's what he's saying. You don't have to be a genius to know where you stand. As smart as they are out there, as, as much as they know, you've got God's word and the Holy Spirit on your side. You have the truth and the defender of truth in you. That's all you need to be discerning. It's like in my message a couple months ago, you have deception insurance. You've got the Holy Spirit and God's word. Greater is he. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You have the Bible and you have God's spirit. That's always an advantage. So he says, you are of God. That means you have the advantage. And then in verse 5 he says, they are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world and the world heareth them. If verse 4 is about true believers, verse 5 is obviously about false teachers. Remember, John had said to try the spirits. If we were to kind of lump these tests in, in, into certain Maybe certain categories. The first test in verse 2 was John saying, examine their perspective on Christ. That's the first test. Well, this test in verse 5, it says, look at the end. It says, and the world heareth them. So, first test is, what do they think about Jesus Christ? The second test is, look at their followers. Look who's following them. And I want you to catch this because it'll be a little philosophical as well about our church. John's point here is if you want to recognize true believers or true teachers, look at their followers. It's a great test of the teacher to examine the students. When I, was in, when I taught in, in, in Bible college in Oklahoma City for I think about 12 years, I taught a couple classes, and, and there were times where I would, get, I would get upset or frustrated that the students just weren't doing well enough, and they weren't working hard enough, and they weren't putting effort in 
And I would get a little frustrated, like, come on, let's do this. But then when I really, after a while, I started to realize that the failure of the students was less a reflection on the students than it was on their teacher. When they would not do well, it was usually because, okay, always because I didn't explain things well. And in my first couple of years teaching, I would look at it like, well, these guys are just, they are lazy or they don't try. But, at, but the last probably half of my teaching experience, I looked a lot more at myself than I did at my students because it was a reflection on their teacher how they were doing in class. It's kind of like parenting. You know, we, parents, we can say, well, we've got a child just doesn't want to do what we tell them and, and you know, they're really hard-nosed and they're a strong-willed child and but untrained children say, may say more about parents than anything. Our consistency, I mean. And I've done that too. I've had plenty of times where I'm so frustrated with my child who just won't seem to do what I want them to. And then I stop and start thinking about, okay, when's the last time we had a training session at home? And it's been a while. You know, their, their behavior is less a reflection on their own sinfulness than it is on my parenting. And John is saying something similar. If the world embraces, here's what I want you to get. If the world embraces their teaching, it's likely a good sign they're of the world. And I go to like modern Christian music now to think about this. You know, the appeal that modern Christian music has to the masses, the fact that certain artists can be on secular shows and and, and Hollywood productions, and, and these are Christian artists, but they're being accepted by the world, that should tell me something about the nature of what they're producing. Because the world doesn't just usually accept things that are holy. And it's good for us to filter. Listen, if you want to know if there's a true teacher or not, um, look at their followers. Remember, the term world uh, is... In 1 John 2, it was love, not the world. And the, the world is that system which is under Satan's influence. My takeaway here from verse 5, listen, is it seems like by saying, and the world heareth them, that John is saying there are some teachers that have gone out and they have a large following. they got a lot of people coming to their church. And to that, I would say, friend, a big crowd doesn't mean God is in it. If you tell the world, what, the world what it wants to hear, you will not lack for an audience. So we have false teachers today in famous churches, and they're preaching things like there's no hell. They're preaching things like uh, people aren't really sinners and God is about love. And if you give God, if you give that God is obligated to give us and bless us and give us riches and give us good health. And they're building a crowd, a large crowd. They're filling stadiums and they're playing secular music in their services as a way to worship God and people are just eating it up. But John's message is a crowd doesn't equal success. Don't judge the effectiveness of a ministry by its size. Judge it based on its faithfulness to truth as revealed in God's word. Let them have the crowd. As the pastor of Eastside Baptist Church, I'd love to fill this place up because I want people to hear truth. I'd love to see people's lives change. But if we never do and they do, that's fine with me. Let them have a crowd. Let them please the masses. A New Testament church's priority is to please God. And if it turns into a crowd, praise the Lord. But that's secondary to our commitment to truth. 
Verse 6, he says, we are of God. And what he's referring to is the apostles. He's referring to their teaching. And he's saying the people of God will listen to the word of God, while the people of the world won't listen. He says, we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The people of God will listen to the word. The people of the world will not. Testing doctrine isn't just about the doctrine itself. Take note of who's embracing it. If it's accepted by Christians and rejected by non-Christians, that will tell you something of its origin. That's how John tells the believers. He said, here's how you measure or discern if something's real or fake. Look at who's following them. Look at their crowds. Look at the, the, the kind of people in the crowds. Look at their level of commitment. And John wraps it all up by saying... Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Hereby, what do they believe about Christ and what kind of followers are they attracting? If they believe properly about Christ and their followers reflect the spirit of God, you should probably discern that you could trust them. But if they're sketchy on who Jesus Christ is, or if their followers don't really, in your mind, reflect the holiness of God in some way or another, then it's probably time for you to be discerning. It's time for you to take note and be careful of just accepting everything they say. So what does this mean to me? Again, I know this is a warning type message, but there's an application. My question today is how equipped are you to discern the difference? How equipped are you to discern the difference between what's real and what's fake? See, there are a lot of voices out there, and how good are you at trying the Spirit's? Do you need somebody along with you to help you filter it out? Or do you know enough about truth? Do you know enough about God's word for yourself that you could try the spirits for yourself? It's like that $10 bill. I mean, if, you, if I was to come up to you and tell you uh, this is real, if you can prove to me and tell me why it's real, you can keep it. And you'd say, well, I don't really know why it's real. I just am accepting the fact that it's real. No, friends, that's not good enough when it comes to your spiritual life. You need to know what you believe. You need to know what the Word of God says so that when a counterfeit comes along, you can tell it. Because what's at stake is your spiritual life. Most Christians are like that. They don't know what's real well enough to spot the fake. They're primed for a scam. They're gullible. A con man might come along and make short work of them. You don't know what you believe and why you're in the gullibility zone. You're a prime target for a con man. So are you at risk for being spiritually scammed? How well do you know the book? How well do you know what you believe? A lot of Christians, they embrace teachers. And listen, I want you to be really mindful here. There's a lot of Christians out there and they're embracing teachers that they don't observe. Meaning, there's a lot of people in churches just like this that they're online and a lot of what they're being fed in their minds and in their spiritual lives is by some preacher online or some preacher through a podcast or some preacher uh, through CDs. And they're taking it all in. And honestly, that's become their, their pastor. That's the person they're leaning on for spiritual help. But my, my problem with that is you can't observe that person in real life. So to accept whatever they say is to set yourself up as a gullible Christian. 
Or you're watching stuff online and you've got a preacher and he preaches real hard and you like what he says and you like how he says it and so you're embracing that and there are churches everywhere losing people to the internet. Because they're embracing people that may not have such false teaching but the way, and there is some false teaching, but the way they're teaching is also wrong and false. And we've got to be careful that if God puts you in this local church and he placed you here and me as the pastor, that I'm not trying to be arrogant, but this is where you belong. This is where your teaching should come from. Use some other complimentary things out there. That's fine. But the main source of teaching and preaching and fellowship and what you lean on as a Christian comes from Eastside Baptist Church if you're a member of Eastside Baptist Church. I've seen it happen too many times with people leaving a local church because of what some guy on the internet in a different state that doesn't even know their names is telling them. It's time for us to be discerning, especially in this day and age. You know, back then, before the internet, before the radio, and before everything else, in First John's day, they had to go out to listen to a false teacher. And now, some of us are sitting in our living rooms and we're pouring it into our ears. Be careful. And I say it passionately because, and you say, well, why does it really matter? Listen, your ability to exercise discernment directly impacts the effects of truth in your life. If you don't discern, you don't have truth. And let me give you seven very clear reasons why we need truth. Number one, without truth, you can't be saved. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. With Number two, without truth, we can't enjoy spiritual freedom. John 8, 32 says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Number three, without truth, I leave the Holy Spirit out of my life. John 16, 13 says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Number four, without truth, I can't become like Christ, which is my entire life's purpose. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Number five, without truth, God won't honor my prayers. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. Number six, without truth, I can't worship God. John 4, 24 says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Number seven, without truth, I won't be left standing for Christ. Ephesians 6, 14, stand therefore, having your loins girt about. Sorry, I missed that one. John 4, 24, without truth, I can't worship God. He says, uh, I'm looking for worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth. Listen, truth makes a difference in your life. And if you're not discerning, then you will not have the effects of truth. And the effects of truth or would allow you to live a life that pleases God. So you say, why discernment? Well, because if you're not discerning, you don't have truth. And if you don't have truth, you can't live the life you're supposed to. Friends, today the choice is yours. Exercise discernment and through the effects of truth, live a life that pleases God or be a global Christian. Without the effects of truth, live a life that does not please God. A few years ago, I was driving through a toll booth on a toll road in Oklahoma, which we're very famous for down there. And I had a $20 bill. And I gave it to the person at the counter and, and said, I'm mean, just getting on here, I'm going to be exiting here. And they took a look at my money and they said, can you just wait right here for just a moment? I said, sure. 
They came back and they said, can you just pull off to the side, please, right here? I was like, okay, sure. And I knew it was coming. Pretty soon a highway patrolman pulled up and he came up to my door and, and he said, sir, do you realize that you just tried to pay your toll with the counterfeit $20 bill? And I had no idea. So I haven't made Aaron hide the counterfeit machine, you know, we're in the back. No, I had no idea. And, and he said, well, can you tell me where you got this? And I told him where I got it. I had just picked it up at a convenience store not, not long before that. And he said, thank you. And he, said, he sent me on my way. And I was thinking the whole time, but what about my $20? Guess what? I didn't get to keep the $20. I was out money, and the whole time I thought it was real, and it wasn't. It was fake. And in the end, it almost came back to bite me. I lost money in the process. I I got in a little bit of trouble there at the toll booth, and the whole time I thought it was okay. And we're, listen, there's a a lot of Christians out there that are at risk of being tricked into what you believe is okay. Because I wasn't discerning about money, but you're not being discerning about your faith. And you're allowing things in that in the end may, may trip you up, may take you down spiritually because Satan wants nothing more. And today, and I don't even know how this applies, except that if we aren't discerning, we'll miss out on truth. And if we miss out on truth, we miss out on the life God wants us to live. And I don't want you to be there. So as a word of warning today, it's time for some of us to decide, I'm going to be discerning. I'm going to know what God's word says. And I'm going to apply, know enough of what God's word said to apply it to the things that I hear. And as the things that I hear come through, I will filter them through what I know of God. Not just blindly accepting it, but trusting what the Bible says and learning for myself. Because some of you have always just believed what you heard. And I hope what you've heard is true. But you need to know it for yourself. Someday... Your mom and dad, young people, they won't be there to hold your hand and tell you, no, that doesn't sound right. And someday you'll be by yourself and you won't have somebody with you, your friend, your spiritual mentor to tell you, no, you've got to be careful, that doesn't seem right. Some of the ladies in here who may not be married, you've got to be careful because you don't have somebody to balance you. Some of you single men, you don't have a balance in your life. You've got to be mindful. It's time for us to stop just taking what we've always heard and believing it and knowing it for ourselves. Because there's a lot that looks just like this out there that's not real. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.